Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Trano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Hi. This is episode 18, and we are interviewing Garmin L. Bowers Jr. Garmin is a percussionist and woodworker who is very active in the Civil War era brass band community. So it's a little bit different. We're a brass band podcast, but uh, his information is extremely interesting, very different type of discussion that we've had, and we're looking forward to, to sharing this one with you guys. Definitely, yeah, we're representing the percussion family today. They uh, they are present in brass bands. Everybody needs uh, some good drummers, uh, and I really enjoyed talking to him about uh, all the all the stuff that goes into restoring and and actually working with your hands on on these drums and the music stands and chairs that he uh, reproduces. Like you said, it's a little different this one, but uh, it's pretty engaging all of the same. So I'm excited for people to hear it. If you like what you're hearing, come hang out with us on social media. We're on all the platforms. Just uh, type in the Early American Brass Band podcast and we'll pop right up. Give us a follow so you can keep up to date with uh, everything we're putting out. And uh, with that, why don't we just hop right on into the interview? Thank you so much, Garmin Bowers, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. We're super excited to have you. And do you think maybe you could give us a little bit of your, your musical background, maybe some of your early uh, musical experiences leading up to your involvement in the Early American Brass Band world? Yes. Um, okay. I, I grew up in Sharpsburg, Maryland which is, you know, Antietam Battlefield. Uh, I lived on Chaplin Street, which is the back one of the back streets of Sharpsburg that's, like, really close to the battlefield. So as kids, uh, we grew up playing on, on the battlefield and uh, basically took it for granted. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just a playground uh, type thing. Um, we used to uh, ride our bikes on the... Uh, on the battlefield, we uh, we had uh, ponies and horses when I was growing up, and uh, we'd ride uh, ride our ponies on the battlefield. So it's it's always been uh, an intricate part of my life growing up. So so it was a negative and a positive. Uh, the negative was we took it for granted, but the positive was is the influence of the Civil War. Uh, Antietam Battlefield was around us all the time. I uh, started uh, my music experience in the fourth grade. That was in the latter part of the 50s. I started uh, with uh, drums and then went to uh, Boonesboro High School for one year. And then I transferred to South Hagerstown High School and finished my uh, music uh there and then I went off to uh, Shepherd College, uh, got my uh, uh, Bachelor of Arts degree, uh, K through 12 music education, and uh, I uh, uh, eventually ended up teaching middle school. The experience of deciding whether to get a master's degree or a master's equivalency, I had a choice with the the. Uh, board of education that, that, that I was in. And uh, I chose to go the equivalency because it meant that I could jump around. I didn't have to take all my courses at one college and meet specific um, uh, 
key points that I had to do just for them, I was able to decide, okay, you, you know, what course did I want? What course was valid for me and my experience? And so I was able to jump around and gather up everything. And, and uh, I ended up with a master's equivalency uh, 10 years into uh, teaching. Hmm. Uh, that was, that, that, that's my, uh, you know, formal education. Uh, going back and forth. The way I got into uh, Civil War, I remember uh, one Christmas, I think, I got the blue and gray uh, Civil War uh, toy set. And, okay. <laughs> okay, the little, little uh, the blue uh, soldiers and yeah, the yeah. big <laughs> Are you familiar with it? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Well, I got that and, of course, uh, played with it constantly uh, when, uh, let's see, when I got into junior high school, I think I did some kind of a project where I painted all the, the soldiers and made up a, uh, a uh, display with the, the Confederates and the Union soldiers and all that kind of stuff. So, so that was something that was happening in my life. Uh, I also was in, uh, let's see, experienced the centennial at Antietam Battlefield in 1862. And that was a big deal in Sharpsburg. Uh, my uncle was a member of the, um, the Sharpsburg Rifleman. And my father, because we were into horses and ponies and stuff, he liked the idea of the cavalry. And there was a uh, group called Darby's Rangers, and my father joined that group. Hmm. And uh, the, the 1862 centennial, not like today where they don't allow you to be on the battlefield to do reenactments, they did the reenactment right on the Antietam battlefield. Hmm. And I can remember you know, them doing that. That was during the time when they used uh, the ramrods to uh, load their guns and all that kind of stuff. Since then, they, you, you know, it's been dangerous because some people would leave their ramrods accidentally in their, their, uh, uh, you, you know, the rifle and have shot the ramrods out and that kind of thing. But back then, that, that was, you know, was just the normal way that they did it. I remember my dad with the Darby Rangers, they would pay the riders $10 if they would be shot off their horse, if they would fall off their horse. So it was uh, a normal experience uh, for these reenactments and stuff. If my uh, dad would dive off the horse and act like he was an injured, you know, had been shot. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I remember stories about that and everything uh, so, that, so all of that was was so interesting. Uh, I ended up uh, my the, the the little Civil War set that I had uh, when I had my son. I gave it to him, and that got him interested and excited into Civil War, and he wanted to do the reenacting. And so he was, I guess, like maybe five or six years old. And I, uh, we got him a uniform and I made him a uh, simple rope tension drum. And he was uh, reenacting with uh, a Confederate group. 
but he uh, picked up on the uh, ability to do the drums and stuff really, really quick. He then wanted to do fife, and so I got him a fife and uh, showed him the fingerings and stuff. And it's amazing how fast kids pick things up. I mean, uh, he he could play a fife in a short period of time. It, it was like amazing. I was, you know, awed in how fast he picked it up. And so I would go around with him to the uh, reenactments and uh, would be there while he's going through the reenactments and so forth. I had uh, a camper and when they would do reenactments that were far away from home, I wasn't into the uh, doing the reenactments, carrying a gun and all that kind of stuff. And I sure wasn't interested in, in camping out in tents and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff with him but I wanted to be there. So I would take my camper and I would uh, go out and be around and watching him and, and all that while the day was going on, when it came time for everybody to go back to their uh, tents and go to sleep, I went to my trailer and uh, I would stay in an air conditioning trailer. There you go. <laughs> I was traveling around to some reenactments and he was starting to get interested in doing bugling. And I noticed this guy that we went to one of the reenactments and he had a, uh, a bugle that was really unique. And I wasn't aware uh, of ever seeing a bugle like that. Uh, it had a pigtail on it. And uh, I didn't understand you know, that much about it. So uh, I got the opportunity to see the guy when he wasn't reenacting, he was just walking around and I introduced myself to him and uh, asked him some questions about the, uh, the bugle that he had. And he explained to me that it was a Clairon and that the, that the uh, pigtail was an attachment that put the Clairon bugle in the Kia B flat. And that person was Yari Villanueva <laughs> and uh, Yari was talking to me and found out I was a band director and, and he was talking about the stuff he was doing and he was trying to form a group at that time. That was back in 2002. And uh, he said, would I be interested in uh, being part of a, uh, a civil war brass band? And I said, yes. And so we uh, set up a time and, that was when he was in the process of forming this group. So I ended up getting involved with Federal City Brass Band back then. We got together, uh, we made a uh, sample recording uh, CD. I think it was like maybe 10 or 11 selections uh, to uh, send around and to publicize our group. And our very first professional gig was they were doing the 140th reenactment of uh, Antietam and that was in 2002 and so that was our very first gig for Federal City Brass Band and from there it just grew. Um, uh, I was fortunate enough to have been put in a position to know some of the best people, uh, Yari Villanueva, uh, Mark Elrod, uh, Jeff Stockham, um, 
uh, just a terrific uh, E-flat cornet player. Uh, Jeff has his own band in Syracuse, New York, called the Excelsior Cornet. And so what it turned out is that all of these musicians that came together to make Federal City Brass Band, uh, a lot of us had all kinds of other backgrounds. And uh, it, it was neat to see each of us having different strengths and it all coming together to make this this group that was just um, I'm I'm amazed at the uh, experience that I've had with Federal City Brass Band uh, and the people that are that have been part of it. Um, one of the other things we uh, we then decided uh, Federal City Brass Band was a generic band, uh, you know, just a made up name, and it just represented all union all. Uh, federal uh, brass bands, okay? But we ended up deciding to do a specific Confederate impression, and that was the 26th North Carolina. And uh, Yari and his wife, Heather, and a bunch of us, everybody just really went into this gung-ho researching everything. Uh, Heather, uh, Yari's uh, wife, uh, she uh, researched the uh, uniforms down to the absolute minute parts. Uh, she had some people she knew and they made these uniforms. Uh, a lot of us in the group ended up sewing part of the uniforms uh, to make these uniforms. And they used the same material that they used back during the Civil War. And uh, um, it was just a great experience. And then of course, the band itself was just a unique band. I have a lot of background in woodworking. And uh, that came about as a little kid. When we grew up, we built the little carts that, you know, you, you built out of wood and would ride and go down the streets and stuff. And so all of my life, as long as I can remember, I have always worked with wood and did things. Back then when we were little kids, we'd take broomstick handles and whittle the ends off. We'd go to the, the dump in Sharpsburg on our bikes and pick up old uh, wagon wheels off of uh, the Red Rider wagons and bring them back. And we'd uh, put those, grease the wood and put those on our uh, the axles, the the uh, broom axle, and we would race down the uh, the hill in front of our house. <laughs> so, so we did a lot of uh, things like that. And I've always, as long as I can remember, enjoyed music and also working with wood and building. And all of that came together with me as an adult. And when I got involved with the Civil War stuff, uh, it like all just seemed to be the the reason for my being. So that's my background. <laughs> uh, and it, uh, the the woodworking thing came into existence once we got into playing the the Federal City Brass Band. Uh, we had you know old chairs and just regular metal music stands, and I thought, man, what it would be. It'd be so nice to have original stuff 
And of course, there's almost no uh, pictures, no historical information much on like music stands and stuff, because most of the pictures they took, that was considered, you know, you, you get rid of that when you take the picture. They didn't want that to be seen in the pictures and so forth. Uh, so it was difficult, but through the knowledge that I had picked up with working with furniture and building things and stuff, uh, I was aware of the uh, style of building furniture, shaker furniture, that uh, I used that type of knowledge to come up, uh, come up with a music stand that uh, looked like something that would have been used back then and was uh, turned out to be the music stands that I made for our band. Then uh, there were guys that were using the folding Civil War chairs that they had that were originals. Uh, they had bought off of eBay and were originals. But the problem is, is they were little tiny chairs. They were only uh, they would only sit 16 inches high off of the ground. And when you, as a brass player, when you were using them, it messed up your diaphragm and the ability to be able to play. And the guys were complaining at, you know, the difficulties with these chairs. So I took one of the, uh, the uh, original chairs, took the measurements from it and uh, built a chair exactly like what they did the only difference is i made it so that instead of it being 16 inches high that it was a standard 18 inches high which is what us musicians are used to using when playing and uh, so i made chairs and stands for our group and from there uh that's kind of what got me into the uh Facebook.com GB manufacturing with all of the uh, the music stands and the chairs that I make. Uh, I uh, made it possible for us to have uh, candles holders on them, and we were able to uh, to be able to use candles so that uh, when we did reenactments, and we were one of the first Civil War bands that were out there that decided to start doing reenactments and uh we were going to the reenactments and we'd set up our our uh, a eight, eight tents and everything now of course when it got night i headed for my trailer <laughs> of course. That right but uh i stayed up around the campfires did everything until everybody went into their tents but we had uh fly that was set up that we could perform under and some of the greatest experiences that we had as a band was when we would use the music stands that I had made with the candle holders and we would perform at night and all of the reenactors would come around and come up and, and uh, gather around our uh, fly while we would play these Civil War tunes. And it was the, the, the comments we would get after all this, were how absolutely rewarding this was and how what, what an eye-opener it was for the reenactors. They said, this is absolutely amazing. We now know and understand what the band's experience was, you know, for Civil War. And uh, they said it just literally brought the uh, 
reenactments alive. I'm wondering, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you started out doing the like the music stands and the chairs and stuff, which are beautiful, by the way. I've seen pictures <laughs> on Facebook. They're they're beautifully done. So then how did you get into restoring drums? And then I'm wondering if you could give kind of an anatomy of what uh, a rope tension drum how how it functions for people who maybe might not know all the inner workings of that. Okay. Through my experience with woodworking, I would keep getting into different things. I ended up, I was working with shaker, oval shaker boxes. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? They, the fingers, uh, you, uh, uh, you, you cut the wood. It's like uh, uh, eighth inch, uh, 16th inch thick uh, wood. Uh, usually ash, and uh, you uh, steam bend it and make these boxes. Well, mm-hmm. I was making those uh, and uh, doing them basically for the experience of knowing how to do them and, uh, you, you know, for the fun, and I would give them to family members and that kind of stuff. I keep coming back to Federal City and all these great people that were part of our group. Uh, it was just a great experience having all these people with special super talents that were coming into the group. One of the people that I got to meet was Jim Smith. Now, Jim Smith is a drum historian. I mean, this guy is like, he is like Mark Elrod with the brass instruments and the brass music and all that kind of stuff. Well, he's that way with the drum stuff. And uh, uh, I got to meet Jim Smith. Jim Smith found out about me doing these oval boxes. And he said, well, Garmin, aren't you, you know, do you make drums? And I said, no. And he said, well, why not? He said, you've got all the, the background and experience. You know, making a drum is just like your oval boxes that you're doing. Uh, m- making the drum is, is no different. And so he and I got talking and doing things and I ended up making toy drums that I was putting labels on like Antietam National Battlefield or Gettysburg National Battlefield and was giving them out to friends and selling them to people who who wanted them. And they were made just like the real drum was being made. I steam bent the shells. Uh, uh, The only thing is I didn't use leather calfskin heads i was using uh preformed the uh remo fiber skin heads uh they were eight inch fiber skin heads and i was able to cover the uh, metal rim uh you cover it with uh masking tape and the masking tape looks like calfskin which makes the drum look like a a calfskin drum head and so that's what i was doing and that's what got me into the making drums and uh uh from there that just grew mark had drums and he asked me if i could you know restore some of his drums and so the whole process just one thing after another i just kept acquiring more knowledge and more knowledge of course there was uh, a fair amount of knowledge that i already knew like uh when i had taken lessons as a kid in uh middle school and high school from a drummer, uh, a drum teacher around this area. His name was Simon Snyder. Of course, he was old enough that he had uh, lived through 
the generation of making your drum heads, you know, tucking your own own heads. I was at the age that calfskin heads was old style. If you were any kind of a, a good percussionist, you were into the new plastic heads, you know. And so I was at that transition where we were still using calfskin heads, but the new plastic heads were coming into existence. And so I learned uh, information from my uh, private teacher on how to tuck heads and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't take it to heart because he was old fashioned. You know, the new stuff was the plastic heads, Uh, you, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, as I got older and I got in with Federal City and started doing all this stuff with all these drums and everything, the knowledge that I had learned years and years ago came into, uh, you, you know, good use. And I was able to work with this. And, and so it was a combination of my background in, in woodworking and uh, the knowledge that I'd gotten as a kid. That Then Mark starting me out by saying, you know, I've got this drum I need restored. And so I just, you know, fell into it that way. I've done so many drums for people that it's just unbelievable. I did one for Bob Backus. He got a uh, nickel silver drum. Uh, I'm not sure where it came from, how he got it, but it was uh, one of these uh, instruments that was engraved and was given to uh, this uh, gentleman that played in the Iron Brigade Band, Marvin H. Lynn, okay, and it was presented to him. Bob Backus had gotten it. It had the wooden rims were painted blue. Uh, it was it was just, you, you know, it was all corroded. Uh, you, you know, I mean, it just wasn't in very good shape. Mark Elrod had said to uh, Bob that he ought to give it to me and let me restore it. And so I ended up restoring that drum for him. If you go to my Facebook page, GB Manufacturing, uh, it's one of the drums in uh, in the album that I have of restored drums. That's one of the drums that I have uh, depicted uh, that I restored. B.J. Pino was the director of the uh, Wildcat Band. He ended up uh, sending me two bass drums that I restored for him. Uh, Jeff Stockham has gotten uh, several uh, snare drums and drums. He sent me drums that I've restored for him that he uses with Excelsior Cornet Band. Mike O'Connor, uh, he got a, uh, a late model 1800s, uh, late model snare drum that he wanted restored for his uh, Newberry Cornet Band. And I ended up uh, restoring it. It was a like an 1880s, 1890s uh, snare drum. Uh, and it turned out really nice that I restored for him. Uh, like uh, instead of gut snares, this particular model, it was the beginning of the uh, metal snares. That was kind of interesting, uh, working on a drum that was starting to transition into the uh, uh, 20th century. An older guy that was out of the uh, metropolitan area, Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, uh, he had an organ that this bass drum fit onto the uh, uh, the organ. And when you played, when, when the organ played, 
it would also cause the bass drum to play and that drum needed restored. And so he brought it to me and I restored that for him. Mm-hmm. So there's just been all kinds of, of restorations. I'm curious when you get a drum to restore, what kind of is your philosophy? Like how far do you go on the restoration? Is the goal always to get it to be a playable instrument or is that kind of dictated by the condition the drum comes into your shop? If it's so far gone that you're, you know, really just trying to preserve the original drum for display then at that point? Uh, it, it depends. First of all, it's what the person wants. You know, mm-hmm. when they bring the drum to me, uh, they tell me what they want for me to do to it. Uh, but usually my feeling is I don't want to do anything that uh, changes the drum or destroys the drum in, in its uh, uh, in its historical presence, okay? Mm-hmm. So I don't like to do things like cut it down or uh, I don't like to add something that didn't belong on it. Uh, you, you know, like an example, the drum that I use to play uh, our gigs uh, with the Federal City Brass Band is an 1832 Meacham and Pond uh, drum. Uh, now, the, the reason I'm able to date it to 1832 is the label inside the drum uh, says Meacham and Pond, uh, Albany, New York, and, and all that stuff. But where the and pond was, they took a knife and cut a rectangle out. The and pond was cut out. So my label says Meacham. Now, when you go in and you check the, the historical stuff, the, the books and everything, you find out that Meacham and Pond was a partnership from 1824 to 1832. In 1832, they dissolved their partnership and it just became Meacham. And what they did is this drum was a leftover and they just took a knife and cut in the label and it's cut into, you know, I mean, you can tell it wasn't a leftover label because they cut into the wood in the, the, the shell of the drum. So that dates the drum. I know that it was made when they were Meacham and Pond and sold as Meacham. Uh, so that drum, the, the reason I got into all that, uh, that drum is a field drum. It does not have a snare strainer on it that I can turn my snares on and turn my snares off. It's It was a field drum. It was made for the military. It wasn't made as a drum to be played in concerts and that kind of stuff. It was made to march the soldiers and to tell the soldiers where to go and what to do and all that kind of stuff. Uh, The way the snares were uh, used on that drum is they had a leather stop that the gut was uh, threaded into, and then it was pulled across the bottom head and it was clamped on with the bottom sh- uh, with the bottom rim, and the the leather um, the leather ear pulls is what tightened it down and tensioned up the drum to make it for for playing purposes. That drum did not have a snare strainer on it. The only way you could stop the snares from from working was by muting it, and you would have to take a a piece of cloth 
and tuck underneath the snares between the snares and the drum head. By the way, when you are looking at um, music that you read uh, for whatever purposes, like at college and so forth, and you'll come across a, a, a score and it says field drum muted, uh, muted field drum, or uh, I'm sorry, it won't say muted, it'll say muffled, muffled field drum. What they're talking about is a deep, deep drum like I have uh, that was muffled with a piece of cloth stuck in between the snares and the bottom head. And uh, that, you know, that, that that's how that terminology came, came about. When I started reproducing rope tension drums and I was restoring these drums, of course, the, uh, one of the things that goes bad are the, uh, uh, the rope on the drum. And a lot of the drums, mm -hmm. you would get them, they would have uh, old, old laundry string that like people would use to put, uh, to hang their clothes on, you, you know, uh, mm -hmm. that time is long since gone, but, but whatever, it was, it was just old uh, clothesline rope. And uh, so I started to try to find suppliers for hemp rope and could not find any. I mean, uh, I'd be talking to people like I would talk to Jim Smith, who I said was a great uh, historian for drums. And I said, Jim, where do you get the rope? You, you know, what's going on? Well, I've got a stash that I got way back in 1966 and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't help me. Uh, you know, how am I going to find this stuff? So I started researching and I started checking everywhere to try to find out how I could find hemp rope. And I literally just was having a terrible time. And I came across this site, Twisted Monk. And it was an exotic uh, company that was into uh, uh, tying, you know, tying people up uh, for uh, sexual pleasure. There you go. Twisted <laughs> monk, and I was able to get a piece of hemp rope, and it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, the stuff was unbelievable. I'm telling you, it was fantastic. Man. I got on this drum. I mean, it was just great stuff. They would uh, they'd get it, of course, and they would uh, condition it. And when you get it, I mean, the stuff was beautiful. I mean, just fantastic. Now, of course, they did it in all kinds of colors. And, <laughs> you know, but all I wanted was the natural hemp. Mm -hmm. So that's what I ended up getting. But it was so darned expensive. Mm -hmm. So I kept hunting and hunting and hunting. And for the longest time, I was using this hemp rope from uh, from Twisted Monk. And it was just the, the strangest thing. You know, I'd call on the phone and I'd be talking to these people. And it was like, you know, okay, uh, I was buying large quantities of it. Uh, but, you know, I, th there was a part of me that was embarrassed because I'm thinking, oh, they probably think I'm into this, uh, this kinky stuff of tying people up and everything. But eventually they realized that I was doing this with, the, with drums. And uh, I would 
would buy, uh, you know, large quantities of this, uh, this hemp rope. And yeah. it's fantastic. Because hemp is technically in the same family as marijuana. It's in the cannabis family. Yeah. Right? So it's heavily regulated. And yeah, there's been a whole debate, you know, in the manufacturing world about, you know, hemp based clothing and like building materials and everything. And it's just Absolutely. a whole nightmare. And it's only been lately that they have uh, 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 relinquished and uh, backed off and softened up on a lot of the the laws and stuff that they have so it is a lot easier to get hemp rope now than it was when i first started to get into this yeah um, and uh, so i found since then i found some other places that i get hemp rope uh but it's not the quality that i get from uh, uh twisted monks yeah. i mean twisted monks hemp rope is still by far some of the best stuff the only problem is is it's four strand and most of the uh, hemp rope during the civil war would have been six or eight strands uh, wrapped together. And so I kept trying to find companies that would uh, have hemp rope in more than just four strands. And I ended up finding some suppliers that I could get seven strand hemp rope and uh, uh, six strand hemp rope. But when it comes to me, it's not uh, conditioned to the quality that the uh, uh, Twisted Monk hemp was. So I had to uh, also learn how to uh, do the, the conditioning of the rope so that I could take this new rope I'm getting and now condition it and make it look really good and uh, work for the, uh, for the drums that I'm doing. So you're not working with Twisted Monk anymore? Uh, I, every now and then I still order something, but no, only for my personal pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure it would be cool to, to maybe get a sponsorship with them, but I don't know if you would want Twisted Monk associate having the, a label on your manufacturing company. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was so crazy. You, you just wouldn't believe I'm serious. You wouldn't believe how hard I had to hunt. And when I found, uh, that I was able to get this from Twisted Monk. It was unbelievable. And uh, it was amazing how funny it would be when I would talk to people and tell them where I was, because they'd ask me, you know, where are you getting this great hemp rope? And I would tell them, and it was just hilarious. You That's know? awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. You, you were touching on before that, uh, you know, we, we already talked extensively about the uh, the restorations that you do and everything. And you mentioned reproductions as well. So you are in the, the field of doing reproductions? I do. Uh, I don't get much call for it. I guess basically because I'm a, a, you know, I do custom work. In other words, I don't have drums that I build and set and wait for somebody to call me to buy. Uh, you, you call me and tell me what you want and I build it from scratch. Uh, and I build it exactly like what you want the projects where you do do the reproductions uh do you have models of period instruments that you reference or is it purely based on what the customer wants and even if it's not period or how does that work uh it basically the people that i'm dealing with they know uh what they're after and uh they want a specific uh type of drum okay so so i end up doing them and they're they're pretty much uh Let's see, the way I, I advertise my reproduction drums, I say, you know, uh, that 
I make a drum that when I'm finished with it, it looks like an original drum that has been restored. A lot of people make reproduction drums, and when you see it, it looks like a brand new uh, rope tension drum. And it's a great drum. It plays good, it sounds good, but it looks like a brand new rope tension drum. My drums don't look that way. When, when you get one of my drums, it looks like it was a restored period drum. Uh, because like I say, the way you, you, you bend the wood for the shell, uh, they're not, they're not smooth. They're, they, you know, they look like an original, uh, a period drum would have, would have looked like, uh, I ended up, uh, let's see, guy by the name of Henry Duquette, uh, from Rhode Island. He played in the Rhode Island, uh, Providence, Rhode Island band. Uh, and he came down and was again the federal city thing that brings everything together uh they uh he and some of his band members were coming down to play as guests in the federal city brass band for remembrance day for gettysburg and uh uh he came down and he brought this uh drum that they had gotten uh that was a george w tennant uh drum 1862, uh, George W. Tennant built this drum, and it was just impressive. Weaknesses in the drums are where the, the rope goes into the holes on the rims, and they will bodge, and uh, uh, the, the rim where the goes through the hole, uh, it causes the the wooden rim to bulge and eventually they crack. And a lot of the drums that I'll get, uh, that I restore, they're completely broke out. Uh, the, uh, the, the hole, uh, where the, the, the wood on top of the opening has been completely broken out. And, uh, I've learned tricks of the trade to be able to uh, fix that. I have, uh, wood epoxy that I use that, you know, looks and, and uh, uh, turns out to be just as good as wood that I can repair them and stuff. But that was one of the things. But of course, back during the Civil War, when they had rims that broke, it was no big deal. You threw the rim away and they gave you another one. Uh, you, you know, uh, it just wasn't anything. Nowadays, uh, you know, you have like my 1832 Meachman Pond here. If my rim breaks, I can't throw it away and just go get a new one. Uh, so you got to be careful with them. You, you know, you have to know how to repair them and all that kind of stuff. Can you maybe talk about the uh, the time frame it takes to create a reproduced drum kind of in its entirety? Yeah, uh, it, it, it takes a, a good while. Um, the, first of all, you, you've got to find the wood. Uh, Ashwood, uh, you know, the, the trees are hard to come by um, because they're infested with uh, uh, some kind of a virus, a bug or whatever. And so uh, sometimes you can get the wood, sometimes you can't. I just happen to uh, have a, uh, a Mennonite planing mill that's in my area. And uh, they were able to hook me up with some other Mennonites who had uh, 
uh, a raw planing mill that came across some uh, uh, ash wood. And I was able to get some really uh, wide pieces, 20 inches wide and really long pieces of ash wood uh, that they had a tree that had been cut down and I was able to get. Uh, you know, you can't find the stuff like you used to. But you, you you have to get the wood. It has to be cut to a, a little bigger than than an eighth inch thick. Uh, depending on the size of your rim, uh, it can, you, you know, uh, 12 inches, 14 inches is usually the, the sizes. And uh, uh, that has to be cut. Uh, then you have to uh, steam bend it. And uh, you have to be careful because, of course, when you're steam bending it, it's easy for it to split. Uh, and uh, because of the, the grain in it, that it can split and uh, you can lose a whole piece if you're not careful. Uh, but whatever, you, you end up, you, you, you have to steam bend that. Uh, you then have to uh, splice it together. And everything takes a fairly long period of time to go through. So for me to do a reproduction drum from beginning to end, uh, I usually tell the person that we're looking at somewhere uh, to, let's see, three to six months, depending on, you know, how fast I can get things to happen. A lot of it has to do, of course, with my time uh, trying to work it in since since I can't make a living at doing this. Uh, there's uh, This is more of a hobby than it is a living. So I'm not able to uh, do nothing but work on drums. You, you might be interested in this. When you get a, a period drum and I have to restore them, uh, the wood is super dry. Uh, the first thing you have to do is tear these drums apart and you have to hydrate the, the wood. You have to put life back into it. So you have to use linseed oil and you have to uh, hydrate the wood. You have to soak it in linseed oil and get, uh, get, get the life back into the wood. Otherwise, uh, it would be brittle. You, you know, you, you'd have to be afraid to do anything with it. And one of the hardest things that I've had to worry with are the labels. Uh, the labels in the drums. Sometimes you get a drum and it doesn't have a label at all. Sometimes you get a drum and it has a label and it looks like it's in great shape, but they are literally, uh, as soon as you touch them, they fall apart. Um, there was a thing during that period of time in history, they were starting to realize a faster, cheaper way to make paper. You can uh, find a clock that was made in the, uh, uh, 16th century, 17th century, and the labels will be just pristine, okay? And uh, you will find a label off a drum in the mid-1860s, and it will be just deteriorating. And the difference is earlier paper was made with cloth fiber. They would save all their old clothes and and all that stuff. And that's what they used to make paper out of. In the middle of the uh, 1800s, they started to experiment and found out that it was cheaper to make paper out of wood product. And so they were using wood fiber. 
But the problem is, is the way they made the paper, it was acidic and it deteriorated. Now, to them, that didn't mean anything because, you know, they weren't going to see it 100 years from now. But we end up with the problem because we find out that we've got these labels that you you almost can't even touch them because as soon as you do, they they fall apart. So I did a fair amount of research in trying to figure out how to, to restore the labels, uh, you, you know, what you can treat them with to get rid of the acidity, uh, uh, you, you know, w- what you can do to enhance the label so that you try not to lose the label. Uh, it's, it's not easy and I'm not 100% perfect at it, but I've gotten way better at it over the years. Um, uh, which is, is neat. So you've got all that process that you have to do. Uh, let's see the paint, like you were talking about reproducing a drum. Uh, when, when I reproduce a drum, the, uh, uh, the wooden rims, that hold the drum heads on, uh, they have, uh, they're painted. And uh, the type of paint they would have used would have been uh, what they call milk paint, okay? You know, you can buy it, you can still buy it today. And then that paint has to be sealed with a, uh, a period varnish like um, tongue oil. Uh, and you use that. And so that's one of the ways that you have to finish off the uh, wooden rims. Um, let's see another thing when you, uh, to make the drum heads, you have to make a flesh hoop. A flesh hoop is a piece of wood that's uh, about three eighths by three eighths. And it's like 50 some inches long. And you have to steam bend that and splice that together. And that's what you wrap, uh, the, uh, calf skin over. And, uh, they're, are few places anymore that you can get calf skin. Now I, I deal with a supplier, uh, Jeff Stern, uh, out in the Midwest, uh, has a, uh, a tannery. They make the calf head blank that you use, uh, to, uh, to make your calf skin heads. Twisted Monk didn't have any, uh, calf skin heads for you. He did not. Uh, I, and I found out that, uh, that the calfskin heads off the period drums, the old ones, uh, were always thicker than like modern calfskin. So when I order my calfskins from uh, Jeff Stern, I always tell Jeff to make them a little on the thicker side for me, that I want uh, 15,000 uh, thickness rather than the normal like 10,000 or 12,000 that they use. So then you have the heads that you have to, to uh, build to, uh, I mean, excuse me, you have to tuck to, uh, to, make, uh, to make the drums. And uh, something else, the uh, bottom head was a transparent head. They called it a slunk head. And what it was is back then, uh, it was like the, uh, the calf skin from an unborn calf. And it would have a transparent look to it you could kind of see through it. And uh, this particular head on, on my drum, my Meacham and Pond drum that I have, it's very old, but I don't think it's, uh, you, you know, from the 1800s. Uh, but it's very, but it is a slunk head and it is very old. Uh, so I never replaced the, the bottom head and my, my snare gut is very old. 
and I've never replaced it. And as you can see, you know, I was talking to you about the, uh, the field drums uh, not having a strainer. If you notice on this drum, and the people can go to my uh, Facebook page and see that, that it's just clamped. That's the only way that uh, the snares are in here. They're just clamped with the, the rim being pulled down on, on it. Uh, so there's no way of turning the, the snares off with a strainer. Um, so that was, you know, one of the things that uh, exemplified a field, uh, field drum. Um, now on my drum, I have a, a bad place here. When I was reenacting with uh, President Lincoln's own, Don Johnson, uh, when we did the movie for Spielberg, Don Johnson bought the uniforms from the uh, from the uh, uh, movie company and uh, organized the band called uh, President Lincoln's Own. And uh, we ended up performing for the reenactment of Lincoln's uh, death. Uh, I think it was 150th. Uh, I'm not sure about that date, but we ended up going out to Springfield, Illinois and doing the parade and they did a funeral uh, march. The parade lasted for three hours. I mean, it was grueling uh, and it was so bad because, you, you know, when you do uh, a funeral procession, you don't march at your regular 96 beats per minute it's more like 72 beats per minute so it's way slower and i ended up playing on the same spot on my head for so long that it i ended up busting through it while we were playing drum heads are expensive i repaired this drum head by putting a patch in underneath with another piece of old calfskin head and it sounds so good and has lasted so well that I've never replaced the head. So uh, the, the the head looks bad with that uh, tear in it, but it sounds great and it plays great. So uh, that's something with the that you can only get with experiences is knowing that type of patch and and knowing that it would work. If it was anybody else, I think that busted through the head. You know, you they'd see a different head on that drum by now. So that's awesome that you were able to preserve it with all the experience and knowledge that you had for sure. Yeah, It's funny. It's like it broke. So you fixed it, but now it's not broken. So don't fix it. Calf skin head is about a hundred dollars to replace. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, and, uh, you know, a hundred dollars is a hundred dollars, you know, and I was able to patch it. And, and it's, it's working really, really well. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I was talking about the, the um, snare gut. Uh, when I was working, uh, restoring these drums, I was having major problems being able to find snare gut that didn't look new, uh, that didn't look uh, fake. Uh, I was getting, uh, ordering snare gut from uh, music companies. And what it is, is their snare gut, it's a gut that they make for like a tennis racket. You know what I'm talking about? With, with this? Okay. Uh, and it looks, the, the way they do it, that the refinement of the way they make the gut is so perfect that it looks like plastic. Matter of fact, I got ordered some, some snare gut 
from a company and it came to me and I was so sure it was plastic. I had to take uh, a lighter and try to melt it to see if it was real. And it turned out it was really gut. Uh, it wasn't plastic, but it looked like plastic. And I thought, I can't put this stuff on a hundred and uh, you know, 150 year old drum. I mean, I just cannot put this stuff on a drum. Uh, it just didn't look right. And so I started to figure out what am I going to do? So I started doing research and found out uh, how they made snare gut. Uh, it, it's the same principle that they used to make uh, strings for a violin or a cello or a bass. And so I was reading up on all that stuff, and it was real, uh, real interesting. Uh, it was, uh, you know, they would talk about uh, the uh, uh, places that would make the strings for these violins and violas and cellos and string basses. They would be set up close to a butchering, uh, butchering place uh, because they would get the gut from the butchering place. And they would then have to clean it and they would then have to slice it and, and work on it. And so over a period of time, I started to figure out how this was done and I started experimenting with it. And it took me about two years, but I was able to, to uh, figure out how to make the snare gut. And what it is, is it's uh, casings that you use for sausage. Uh, you buy the, the casing. And then what you have to do is you have to split it and then you can wrap it and make the gut. And when I did it, it was like fantastic because all of a sudden it didn't look like plastic. It now had a tan grayish color to it, like the stuff I was taking off these original drums. And I thought this is just perfect. So I ended up, I make my own snare gut so that I can replace the uh, uh, the old gut because that's one of the things one of the first things that you lose the the things <laughs> on a period drum that go bad are uh, the snare gut is one of the first things that goes bad uh, the second thing are the drum heads themselves even if they're in uh, even if they look like they're in good shape they're usually so dried out that you can't play on them uh, and then the the next thing are the uh, is the rope and then the next thing are the leather ears so you know it was a process of learning what things to replace and what things not to replace and and so forth yeah that's awesome man uh, i'm learning so much i know steven and i kind of live in the uh the brass world kind of thing and at least with our band you know i, I try to have some knowledge to help out our percussion friends but um i'm realizing how much i don't know so it's it's really awesome uh, getting this perspective. Yeah, this is this is great. We saw on your website that you mentioned that you're able to do drum uh, repro uh, drumstick reproductions also, and yep. we ha we have an article from Frederick Fennell that talks about his uh, bass drum beater. Can you uh, maybe briefly describe what for our listeners what the difference between period drumsticks are and uh, any challenges that you might face when when trying to create those? Well, the the, the biggest thing with with the drumsticks is, of course, uh, the uh, uh, availability of good wood 
uh, back in the 1800s was immense, okay? So they had all kinds of wood and it was like really good. Like if you got uh, uh, rosewood, it was dense. It was just pristine uh, uh, rosewood. Now when you buy rosewood, uh, you have to hunt you know, because the wood's not as old, um, uh, you, you, you know, and, and it's not of the quality that it was back then. So you may have to really hunt around. There are companies out there that you can buy uh, wood for instrument making. Uh, one of the places is, uh, I think, out in uh, Oregon. I uh, forget the name of the company. Uh, but uh, they have uh, different woods that you can purchase. Uh, like I, if I'm making, uh, if I want to make a pair of ebony drumsticks, I would uh, order a blank from them. And they have, you can go online and you can look at it and they give you the, the dimensions and you're able to see whether it has any flaws in it. Like if you're doing a stick, you can't have a knot in it. You, you, you know, you can't have any flaws in the wood. Otherwise it won't turn out, uh, you can't spin it. Uh, I also, I was telling you about, I deal with a Mennonite uh, planing mill. Uh, they have a reproduction lathe, wood lathe. And so I'm able to take an original drumstick and take it to them. And uh, they have a duplicating lathe that will follow that drumstick and get the exact perimeter, uh, you, you know, the exact uh, shape of the drumstick from the original. Uh, and it's neat, you know, if you have a pair of Civil War uh, age drumsticks, you don't want to play with those and break them. You, you know, uh, th that's what you want to put, you know, up on a shelf and keep in your collection. But boy, wouldn't it be neat to have that drumstick though exactly reproduced that you can play with it and so that's what i've done over the years i've gotten people that had uh the the original drumstick and they would loan it to me i would make a pattern off of it by taking it to the planing mill and we would use calipers and within thousands of an inch we would fine tune it in and it's expensive and it takes a long time because uh, to make that drumstick, you have to do like maybe three, four blanks that you run through before you fine tune the duplicating lathe to the point that it can reproduce that particular drum stick. Uh, Mark Elrod had a pair of sticks uh, that uh, we call big tip Civil War drumsticks because they had a great big tip on the end of the stick where most drumsticks have a little tiny ball on the end. Uh, this had a really big, big tip on it. And I happen to have a copy. Um, and again, people can go to my website and see uh, what it looks like. But the drumstick was very unusual. And Mark brought it to me and he said, hey Garmin, he said, uh, uh, you wanna look at these drumsticks uh, and uh, you want to try them out. And uh, you can see it's got a massive size tip on the end of it. Um, let's see if I hold it so it's, you can see it at my, can you see that? Yeah, I can, yeah, that's. Barely, <laughs> about the size of your uh, your thumb. 
you know. And uh, the, the the drumsticks, he he uh, gave them to me and said, uh, play a concert, uh, you, you know, play with them. And so I played with them. They were extremely light, which is unusual for a Civil War era drumstick. Most Civil War era uh, drumsticks are heavy. They're made out of uh, ebony or they're made out of cocobolo or they're made out of rosewood uh, or they're made out of hickory or they're made out of uh, persimmon. And uh, uh, they're usually a fairly heavy stick. And these sticks were seriously light and I couldn't believe it. I played the gig with them. And when I was done, I said, Mark, I said, these sticks are fantastic. I said, they almost play themselves. I said, I just couldn't believe the rebound on these sticks. And, and they were. They were just the greatest feeling stick I'd ever played on, but so strange looking. They just didn't look like they would be. They looked like they were more of, a, of something that you would uh, put up on a shelf and look at, not play mm-hmm. with. Yeah. And uh, whatever. They, they were so great. I ended up. I made uh, copies, uh, you know, made a pattern from them. And I ended up, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be nice? You know, you talk about here, people talk about drumsticks and you hear about all the different woods that they used during the Civil War to make drumsticks. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat to have the same exact drumstick, but make it out of all the woods so that I have, I can pull open a, a collection and go, okay, here's, here's a birch, here's a persimmon, here's, and, and you can just pull it out and play with it and see what kind of feel you get. And so that's what I ended up doing. And the stick, the absolute stick that I use when I play all my gigs now is this, what I call big tip civil war era drumstick that Mark Elrod had. And uh, on my uh, Facebook page, uh, you can go in and it, I will show a picture of the original stick that I used to make the patterns. And then you will see the, the, the different sticks that I've made. I've, in the meantime, I've been trying like crazy to find a way to make it less expensive to make the sticks because the process of dialing in, every time I go to make a stick, I've got the pattern now, but every time I go to make sticks, it's just as long as making the very first one because you've got to dial it in. The, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, it, it's not something that you have the, the lathe set up that it's all ready to go and it can just turn out a foul, you know. So mm-hmm. if I get one stick, it costs me a fortune. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't afford to make a thousand of them mm-hmm. to bring the price down because it's a, it's a small niche. There isn't mm-hmm. enough people to buy the sticks to make it worth my while. Uh, what I have been starting to do is check into CNC lathes. But the problem is to buy a CNC lathe, you're talking about ten to fifty to a hundred thousand dollars to buy a CNC lathe, wow. which again puts it out of my price range. Mm-hmm. A CNC lathe, you're able to save the program mm-hmm. and it would cut my uh, time uh, in uh, setup. Yeah, that's really interesting. Man, it's it's cool all the what the thought that has to go behind and the work that has to go behind it, but you know, your your Facebook website shows uh the quality of the product, you know, it speaks for itself and and the people that I know that have received your work 
are, are testaments to the, the quality and the, the care that you put into everything. So it's yeah, all really awesome. So great. This has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to learn uh, more about your process and where can people get in touch with you if they want to maybe order some sticks or get in contact about a drum? Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you go to uh, facebook.com backslash GB manufacturing, and that'll get you to my uh, Facebook page, which has uh, all the information, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, my uh, Facebook page is set up uh, in albums, and the albums are like pages of a catalog. So you click on a picture, and it opens up, and then you can read about that item. And uh, I talk about the way I uh, restore uh, period uh, instrument cases and how I build uh, reproduction instrument cases. The instrument cases that I make are not cheap. Uh, they are basically a piece of artwork that goes with your period instrument is the way I try to explain it. Uh, I have made instrument cases that were more economical, but uh, I use really good woods. I use uh, special joining processes like uh, um, dovetailing and, and rabbit, uh, rabbit ears and so forth, all the different ways of joining the wood, uh, finding the, uh, uh, the brass uh, hardware for the cases and stuff is also hard. Uh, but all of that can be found on my uh, web page or my uh, Facebook page. And uh, you can contact me through my email, which is GarminBowers at myactv.net. And that will get a direct line to me and uh, go from there. Uh, just about anything that... Uh, somebody wants to talk to me about or uh, discuss, I'm more than welcome to share knowledge and information with them and, and help them out in any way I can. Great. And we'll have links to all that stuff, uh, your Facebook page and your email address and all that on our website uh, in the show notes for, for this episode where we uh, will have other links as well to pictures and things about you and your work. So this has been uh, fantastic. It makes me want to run up to my parents' house and, chop up some wood <laughs> get something going so enjoy talking to you and chris i've enjoyed talking to you i just uh i would love to do another one with you if, if you would have me yeah thank you yeah we'll you'll definitely be hearing from us and we're we're looking forward to it definitely okay all right well thank you so much garmin for coming on we we appreciate your time uh and we hope that you have a good weekend and uh stay healthy during the the rest of this uh unfortunate pandemic <laughs> thank you and best wishes to you all thank you so much Great. take care Thanks. thank you again garmin bowers for coming on to the early american brass band podcast it was really interesting hearing that percussion perspective on all this music related to early american brass band so thank you for coming on and chatting with us Make sure that you follow us on all social media accounts, including YouTube. We've been releasing some exclusive content on there. A lot of times, parts of the interview 
that uh, we're able to extract that are extra we place on YouTube. So to get your full Early American Brass Band podcast fill, be sure to follow us over there on our channel, subscribe to us, and like all the videos. That would help us out a lot. Yeah, let's see if we can push up to 100 subscribers. That would be awesome. This episode's featured album is the first album put out by the Federal City Brass Band. It's their 2003 album titled Pride of the Regiment. Uh, this is the first album that they put out and has a lot of really great music on it that I haven't heard recorded in other places, such as a number of bugle marches, which is really cool hearing a full band play, you know, a full piece, and then for it to have featured bugle calls in the middle of it. So be sure to check out The Pride of the Regiment by the Federal City Brass Band. Thank you again so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.